Well, I have the opportunity to speak three times in the month of March, and each of those uh, Sabbaths will be looking at home worship, and you could call it a a three-part series, if you will, and today we'll be looking at the altar, and then next week we will be looking at, wait for it here, I know, we we, we got it all worked out last night, Donnie, didn't we? That's all right, there we go. Uh, next, not next week, because uh, Pastor Wright is preaching, but the following week, March 18th, we will be looking at home worship, the fortress, and then the following Sabbath on the 25th, we'll be looking at home worship, the garden, looking at different aspects of our personal devotional life, and I believe that by, by God's grace as we study his word, that our hearts will be uplifted to him. So today's message is entitled, Home Worship, the Altar, and I invite you to Bow your heads with me one more time as we pray. Father in heaven, we sense our own insufficiencies. We we recognize our weakness. But thank you so much that your word promises us that when we are weak, we're actually strong in Christ. And so Father, we want to come before you at this time. And I pray, Lord, that you would please guide us I pray, Lord, that as we read your word, that your word would read us, that you would discern what is in our hearts, and that we would come to a deeper appreciation for the Bible, for prayer, and for your character. We are praying these things in the name of Jesus, and all of God's people said, amen. This picture behind me, in front of you, is a picture of a gentleman by the name of Greg. Greg grew up in a comfortable but secular home in the city of Portland. Greg's father was a, uh, an owner of a large construction company. He did well, but there was no worship of God in Greg's home. It was a secular home. And there was no talk of the Bible or talk of prayer. And, and, and Greg was a popular student in high school. He was the essay president of a huge public high school in the city of Portland. And unfortunately, Greg fell into uh, the lifestyle of, of partying while in high school. His, his grandparents were Episcopalian, and they gave Greg a, a, a Bible for his graduation. But Greg kind of put it aside and, and didn't take a lot of interest in that book. But, but slowly, while in college, Greg realized that this lifestyle of parting was not really satisfactory. It wasn't meeting his needs and uh, waking up with different uh, uh, things on his heart and mind. He realized, you know, this is not really what it's all about. And, and Greg started to read that Bible that his grandparents had given him. And Greg began to bring that Bible to these parties. And, and, and he found he was a lot more interested in it than anyone else. He would approach people, hey, look, look at what the Bible says, and no one was really interested in it. Uh, but there was a couple that used to attend these parties. In fact, Greg was, was dating at the time the sister of this couple. And uh, they eventually stopped attending these gatherings that these young people were having in college. And Greg always wondered why, but wasn't really sure. And one day, Greg was driving his car, and he passed this couple on the road. They flagged each other down, and he asked this couple, why haven't you been coming to these gatherings? And this couple told him 
the story of how the owner of the sawmill that the husband had worked at was part of a denomination called Seventh-day Adventists. And they had been convicted that Jesus is coming soon, that the seventh day is the Sabbath, and, and they gave Greg some books called Great Controversy and, and Desire of Ages and Steps to Christ. And over a two-year period, Greg read these books through. And as he began to study the Bible more and more, he was convicted that the Seventh-day Adventist Church was a movement that he wanted to be a part of. And Greg, praise God, a couple years later was, was baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The story doesn't end there, though, because Greg eventually went to a small college called Weimar College, and at Weimar, he met a lady named Allison, and he met Allison. She was a nurse there, and Greg and Allison uh, became married, and they had four children, and one of those children is standing right here talking to you. That's the conversion story of of my dad, Greg and, and Allison Harpin. I'm so thankful that God brought worship of him into our home. Because as you look at our family history and our family tree, you'll notice that once my dad started worshiping God, there were less issues. In fact, when I was at the seminary, they had us look at uh, some of our family issues that we've had in the past, and as I talked to my dad, and, thought, and, and he told me more about his family and, and, and different uh, issues that going back they had for a long time, he realized, and I realized, that God makes a difference. And I'm so thankful that my parents taught us how to worship God. There's many values that my parents passed on to, to me, but one of them that I appreciate the most is their genuine daily relationship with God. Many mornings, I woke up. I was the early bird in the family. My mom told me I'd be the first one that would wake up and I'd be in my crib just humming along, cooing along, and she'd come and bring me to the the living room, and, and I was always up early. And I remember many mornings that I would get up early and go out to the living room, and there was my mom sitting there at her chair reading the Bible and She had her favorite red copy of Desire of Ages. I remember opening this red copy of Desire of Ages and everything was underlined and the book was torn apart. I remember seeing my dad often spend time with Jesus and talk to us about God. And I believe that it was through my parents' time spent at the altar, through my parents' time spending with us in family worship and helping us to seek God that I love Jesus and that I'm spending time with God. That I gave my heart to Jesus. And now, by God's grace, my wife and I are seeking to teach our three young, beautiful children, Judah, Levi, and Eden, to love God with all of their hearts. And we're daily seeking Jesus as a family. Are there trials? Are there difficulties? Are there times that we make mistakes? Absolutely. Lord, please give us patience. I thought that I was a really nice guy until I had kids. And then I realized that there were parts of my heart that the Lord said, yeah, there's some, still some stuff hidden in there that we need to work on. Children have taught my wife and I so much about God. But we are spending time at the altar. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 8, verse 6. And in the book of Genesis, chapter 8 and verse 6, 
we find the first mention of the word altar. It's certainly not the first time that someone built an altar. Of course, we have allusions to Adam and Eve. God gave them uh, clothes from a, a, a lamb, and, and clearly there's allusions to that. But, but the first time the word altar is mentioned in the Bible is Genesis chapter 8 and verse 6. And the Bible says, So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that whom everyone? That Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. He sat on a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters dried up from the earth. We know this story well that God invited Noah to enter onto the ark. He passed on these values of faith to his kids and he tried to pass them on to other people, but unfortunately, no one listened. And then turn with me now to verse 20. Here's the first mention of the word altar. Chapter 8, verse 20. After they got off the ark, it says, Then Noah built a what? An altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And in fact, in the next verse, it says that Noah smelled good. It was a soothing aroma, not because of his cologne or deodorant or anything he was wearing, but because of his heart condition. As Noah was grateful to God and he offered this thanksgiving sacrifice, God, thank you for keeping us safe. As he built this altar and gathered his family around and said, we need to thank God together, it was a soothing aroma to God. It, it smelled good. But we know that this is not the first time that Noah had heard about spending time with God. In fact, if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5, just a few chapters earlier, we find a legacy of families that were spending time with God. Genesis chapter 5, and jumping down to verse 21, the Bible says, Genesis 5, 21, Enoch lived how many years? 65 years and begot who? Methuselah, the longest man that ever lived. And verse 22, after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. How many years? 300 years, had sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Verse 24, and Enoch did what with God? Walked with God and he was not for God took him. One of my favorite Bible characters in all of scripture is Enoch. We don't know a lot about him. The Bible doesn't give us too many details, but it gives us that one important note that Enoch had such a close relationship with God that as he walked with God every single day, he just kept on walking, and God said, you know what? Come up with me to heaven. Amen. I encourage you to do a, a spirit of prophecy study on the life of Enoch. So I've done that in the past. I've been touched as, as this man was so close with God that he considered time with God more than anything else. And clearly Enoch passed down those values of spending time with God as a family, of seeking God together as a family with his sons. Methuselah walked with God. Lamech walked with God. There was an evil Lamech on the other side, wasn't there, on Cain's side. But Lamech walked with God. He, he named his son Noah, uh, different translators uh, say Noah's name means different things, but, but many uh, agree that it, that it means rest. That, that Noah, he thought in his mind, was going to bring rest to this curse that had been placed on the earth. 
Here's these generation of families that love God. And, and then we find Noah, the first mention of the word altar, giving his heart to God and, and bringing his family together on a daily basis. But it didn't start with Noah. It started all the way back with Enoch, and you could obviously keep on going back before that. Turn with me now in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. We, we, we see this pattern again. Genesis chapter 12. And here we have Abraham chapter 12. Verse 7 and 8. We know the story well of how God called Abraham out of California to North Carolina, right? Is that how it goes? And Abraham went because he was trusting in God. No. Abraham went to a new land, the strange people of Canaan that he didn't know about. But he went because he trusted in God. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendants I will give this land. After he had been there, this is after he and Lot had chosen which part of the land they wanted to take and gone their separate ways. The Lord appeared to Abraham, verse 7, and said, to your descendants I will give this land. And there Abraham built a what? An altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. I want something permanent. I want something that happens on a daily basis where when people see that altar, they can know that we are a family that worship God. Verse 8, and he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. So he's moved on from this location, but he doesn't stop building altars. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of God. Abraham did three things when he arrived in Bethel. He pitched his tent, number one. Number two, he built an altar to the Lord. And number three, he called on God's name. And I love that the worship of God was in sync with the establishing of his home. His home was one that was built on God. However, it was not enough just to have the altar built. Abraham called on the name of God. And as family, as, as staff, as travelers pass by, they would know that Abraham's family were impacted by the presence of God. Now, do you think that Abraham's son, Isaac, noticed his dad's regular daily habit? Do you think he did? Of course. Isaac grew up worshiping at that altar. He grew up realizing that the God of heaven that his dad worshiped was the same God of heaven that, that he could worship. That it wasn't just his dad's faith, but that he could experience a walk with God on his own. So let's turn now to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26 and verse 25. You can look at the other stories of Abraham there in chapter 13. But Abraham built altars on a regular basis. Chapter 26 and verse 25. So there he built an altar and called on the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. This is in Beersheba. And there Isaac's servants dug a, a well. This is the only time that the specific word altar is mentioned uh, in Isaac's life as, as someone that uh, built altars, but, but we know that it happened more than that, that, that Isaac uh, clearly was someone that spent time with God. He saw his dad doing it. We're getting the story and the pattern here, but, but do you think that Isaac's son, Jacob, do you think that Jacob noticed his dad's regular habit of spending time with God? Of course he did. Let's go in Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. 
Was Jacob perfect? No. Did he deceive God? Yes. And there, of course, were ramifications for that, but I'm so thankful, as Tiffany's song talked about, that when we go to God with a contrite heart, God is willing to forgive. Amen? And Jacob is feeling guilty. He's feeling that God has forsaken him. He's feeling that he's made too many mistakes. I'm sure that there is someone here today that has been in the same shoes. As you've looked on your life and seen the regrets that you have, you say, God, is there any way that there is room for me? Is there any way that that there's place in heaven for me? I remember talking with my grandfather, who has since passed away, but I had the privilege of living with my grandparents for three years in Escondido, California. I had just graduated from Southern Adventist University and I had gone out to California to pastor at the Fallbrook Seventh-day Adventist Church and live with them for three years and they had a little casita that was attached to their home uh, that I was able to spend time with them and I so appreciated uh, the, those three years that we had as I was able to help them and, and they helped me and it allowed my grandfather and I to have a lot of conversations my grandpa grew up in Africa. His dad was the superintendent for education for, I uh, forgot which particular union there, uh, but unfortunately his, his dad, so my grandfather's dad, uh, he was the superintendent for education and he was killed by a water buffalo while he was serving in Africa. He was gathering people around a tree for Sabbath school and a, an aggressive water buffalo unfortunately came toward them and, and, and my great-grandfather, my grandfather's dad was rushing everyone up in the tree and the water buffalo gored him, and uh, this is before, you know, easy access to hospitals, and uh, where they were, they weren't able to get him help in time, and so my grandpa, as a, as a young boy, came back from, from Africa, serving as a missionary there, and ended up becoming a physician, going to Loma Linda, uh, but in these conversations that we had, I realized that, that my grandfather really struggled with the the knowledge of, of assurance of salvation. He wrestled with that. Can God really love me? As he thought about the mistakes that he made. And, and, and me as just a, a young pastor, we got to have some good conversations and, and talk about Jacob, how, how Jacob had regrets and mistakes. But as Jacob gave his heart to God in repentance and forgiveness, God said, there is room, amen? amen. Praise God for that. Genesis chapter 28 Verse 18, it says, Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. Wouldn't be very comfortable, would it? And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city had been loose previously. And Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me and keep me in the way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I can come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. He's, he's desperately wanting assurance. God, do you care about me? And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and all of it that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Jacob built an altar there, set up his, his stone as a pillar, And we know very well the dream that that Jacob had and how Jesus descended there uh, on the stairs and how God is the one that takes initiative. As Mrs. Weiss says, prayer doesn't bring God down to us but brings us up to him. Look at chapter 33, verse 20. Just one other example here. Chapter 33 and verse 20. Simply says, there Jacob built an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, 
El Elohei Israel. Literally, the, the God of Israel. Jacob was in the habit of building altars. And I think we can get the point here that as we look at the various patriarchs in Scripture, as we see how they regularly built altars to God, as they brought their families around them, those values began to be passed down from generation to generation. And I love this comment that Mrs. White makes in the book Patriarchs and Prophets. She says, like the patriarchs of old, those who profess to love God should erect an altar to the Lord wherever they pitch their tents. Fathers and mothers should often lift up their hearts to God in humble supplication for themselves and their children. Let the father as priest of the household lay upon the altar of God. So you can see the imagery that's being built on just as those patriarchs physically built those altars and brought their families around. In the same way, when we come together in our homes, whether we live by ourselves or whether we have children or whether we're with our spouse, but as we come before God, we in essence are building an altar. And as we do that morning and evening, as we lay upon the altar that morning and evening sacrifice then Jesus is near. And I love what she says here. While the wife and children unite in prayer, pray, prayer and praise in such a household, Jesus will love to, what's that word? Terry. What a beautiful thought. That we can actually do something about making our home that Jesus loves to be a part of. That Jesus wants to tarry in the home that's worshiping here. You know, I want to stay just a little bit longer. Jesus tarried with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He tarried at their house because he enjoyed spending time with them. They gave him hospitality and attention, and he enjoyed conversation. And when a home tarries with Jesus, when they build their altar morning and evening, Jesus loves spending time there. Notice else what we're told in Testimonies of the Church, Volume 7, in every family there should be a what kind of time? A fixed time. A fixed time for morning and evening worship. Not just a, dear Jesus, please be with us as we drive. Not just a, Lord, thank you so much for this cereal. Help the rice checks to bless and nourish us. Not just a prayers for the, the, the food or, or here and there, but, but a fixed time morning and evening to spend with God. How appropriate it is for parents to gather their children about them before the fast is broken, to thank the Heavenly Father for his protection during the night, and to ask him for help and guidance and watch care during the day. And the quote finishes by saying, how fitting also when evening comes for parents and children to gather once more before him and thank him for the blessings of the day that is past. I believe, friends, that we need more than ever before in earth's history. We need to make sure that we, as God's people, are spending time with God on a regular basis. We need to make sure that we are getting help from him because I'm realizing my, my, my need for God more than ever before in this parenting journey. Parenting is the best and hardest thing I've ever done. It's a joyous challenge. And so many of you have gone before us and I know what you're talking about. I need the wisdom of Jesus. Jesus is a far better parent than I am. And I need his, his, his help in not becoming impatient. In, in I, I need his help. I can't just rely 
on myself. We all have hereditary and cultivated traits of, of weakness or character, as Mrs. White says, that we need help in asking Jesus to take from us. And so we see in Scripture this pattern of, of, of how parents recognize that they were the primary molders of their characters of their children. They were the ones that primarily developed the characters of their kids. Not just the church, not just the Sabbath school, not just the school, but the parents. In fact, Barna Research, which is a, a think tank in Christianity, uh, they do a lot of surveys, and maybe some of you have heard of them, uh, but in some study that was done some time ago, uh, of the Christian parents that were surveyed, 85% believed that they were primarily responsible for the moral and spiritual development of their children. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. However, there was a gap between what was believed and what they think they should be doing and actually what was done. Notice this. Among church families, this is among general Christianity, fewer than 10% read the Bible or read the Bible, pray other than at meals, or participate in an act of service as a family in a typical week. That's not a lot. Notice this one. One out of 20, only 5% have a family worship experience outside of church in a typical month. Wow, friends. That means that in the general Christian world, 95% of families aren't gathering their families around saying, let's, let's talk to God together. Let's seek him together. We need his help. They're not having conversations about God outside of church. Essentially, they're seeing the church and maybe the Christian school, they're responsible for the development of my kids. Now, these statistics, thankfully, are not quite the same in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. In fact, uh, the statistics are a little bit better. I know this is a little hard to see here, but uh, David Trim, who works for our church, maybe some of you have heard that name, uh, but he did a report back in 2018 on the Global Church Member Survey. They've done this before. 2013 they did this, uh, but they only surveyed about uh, 20,000 people. And in 2018, they surveyed 65,000 people, uh, specifically Adventists, um, in our church, and they looked at different habits and, and practices of Seventh-day Adventists in our church. And, 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 and they came up uh, with this report, which is interesting. I know this is very hard to read, um, but I want to just bring out a couple of things. Uh, notice, and this is a, a good thing, that 48% say, out of those 65,000 people that are, were surveyed, that they are daily or more than once a day reading the Bible. That's a good thing, right? Praise God. However, notice here that there's still a small percentage that are saying never. 7% are saying only once a month. 13, maybe once a week. So I would like to see daily Bible reading more than just 50% in our church, right? That would be great if it was a lot higher. Uh, but personal devotions, 52%, which uh, you can see it's connected there. At least half of the 65,000 people that were surveyed are saying we're having devotions with God, spending time with God on a daily basis. They, they recognize the need of that. Uh, notice this. Uh, I thought this was interesting. Family worship statistics that only 37%, so even half were saying they had family worship, but 37%, a lot less, were saying they had family worship on a, on a daily basis. Uh, praise God for that. Uh, but that also means that 63% uh, don't have family worship on a daily basis. And I thought it was interesting, too, to notice um, uh, that in the NAD in particular, NAD, and uh, they're actually the, 
the ones that had the never the highest. So they're, they're more like 30% here in the NID don't have family worship on a regular basis. Now, I think that we all know we should have family worship, but I'm the first to say that family worship is hard, isn't it? Man, when your little kids are running around there and you're trying to corral them and say, hey, how can we have worship? Or even not even, you don't have kids at home. You know, uh, reminding yourself on a daily basis to spend time with God can, can be challenging. But I, I want to su- submit to you that uh, for those that, you know, are, are, are thinking about having kids one day or your parents right now, or, or even if your kids are, are, you know, out of the home and, and you're by yourselves, uh, this applies to you as well because just because you don't have kids in your home doesn't mean that you can't apply these principles. Right? We, we can gather people around us. I encourage you, get your neighbors together and once a week have family worship. Wouldn't that be a blessing? Hey, have worship with us. Or maybe if you have worship as a couple, uh, grab a, a neighbor kid uh, like the Possingers and, and say, hey, come have family worship with us and, and we wanna seek God together. But the reason this is important, friends, is because studies have been done in the Seventh-day Adventist Church and they have found uh, something fascinating. How many of you have ever heard of the value genesis study? All right, several of us here, not all, but a lot. Uh, This was done three different times in 1990, 2000, 2010. And it was a research study into the faith and values of young people attending our high schools in North America and and specifically what their thoughts were on family, school, and church and, and the intersection of these three different areas. It was a I think a helpful study for us as Seventh-day Adventists to know how are we really training our young people in our schools? Are they really receiving the values and the commitment to God and the church that we want them to? And what was fascinating is they, they looked at 41 factors for why young people are staying in the church. It wasn't just why are they leaving the church, but 41 factors why they're staying in the church. Right, maybe you've had this conversation before. Why are young people leaving the church? I know a lot of my friends that I went to high school with and college with sadly aren't walking closely with, the, with God anymore. And I know a lot of people can resonate with that. So what is the single most important factor out of those 41 that contributed to young people staying in the church? Out of all those factors, it could be you know, maybe parents that um, you know, took their kids to a Christian church or maybe they, they attended church every month or maybe they were in Pathfinders or or maybe they you know, uh, uh, read their Bibles on a daily basis, but the number one factor out of those 41 that contributed to young people staying in the Seventh Avenue Church, committed to both the church and to Jesus, was interesting family worship. That was the number one factor. Uh, uh, and, and I think what that speaks to is not just a family that, all right, 8 a.m., we're having worship. 7 p.m., we're having worship. Come here, sit, let me read to you, right? No, absolutely not. But if if parents are realizing that they are communicating spiritual values to their children, that home becomes a place of delight. And I love this word here, interesting family worship, amen? It's not just the parents sitting there and, you know, lecturing their kids, uh, but it's also the, 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 the parents saying, hey, you know what, let's come together and let's talk about Jesus together. I love this quote here. Uh, Mrs. Y says, there is no reason why this family worship time should not be the most interesting and enjoyable exercise of the home life. Amen? I love that. Family worship should be exciting. God is dishonored when it is dry and irksome. Isn't that a great word? We don't use that word very often. Stop being so irksome, Pastor Jeff. Our family worship shouldn't be dry and irksome. Let the seasons of family worship be short. That's important for little kids, isn't it? and spirited. 
Do not let your children or any member of your family dread them because of their tediousness or lack of interest. When a long chapter is read and explained and a long prayer offered, this precious service becomes wearisome and is, it is a relief when it is over. And there were some family worships growing up. Oh, Dad, I want to be done with this thing, right? right that, that, that happens from time to time, but we should make family worship interesting. She says it should be the special object of the heads of the family, and sometimes when I'm gone in the evenings for work, my, my wife is leading out in family worship. I don't always have the opportunity to do that. To make the hour of worship intensely interesting. Isn't that great? By a little thought and careful preparation for this season, when we come into the presence of God, family worship can be made pleasant and will be fraught with results that eternity will reveal. I think that is, that is absolutely beautiful. And as we're thinking about family worship, and again, if you're coming in today saying, well, I don't have kids at home and I don't have family, that's okay. Many of you have grandkids that you can have family worship with. Praise God for technology. Call your kids over the phone and say, hey, let's have worship together. It can be short, doesn't have to be long, but let's seek God together as a family. Here are three just uh, principles that I think we could apply to family worship. And the first is, as Mrs. White mentions, to keep the time short, especially for little kids. You know, when we're going on for 30, 40 minutes, it can leave them uh, bored and unengaged. I think as kids get older, uh, certainly that worship time can, can extend. Uh, number two is focus the family time on God, not just a, you know, a, a, hey, let's come together and lecture each other on how bad we're all doing. Uh, I think it's important to focus it on God. You know, there, there was one time that my parents uh, tried something called family council, and it was different uh, than family worship. You know, this is a separate time where my dad wanted to bring us together. And I think it was a noble idea. I really do. I, I applaud my parents for this. You know, we, let's bring the kids together. And if, if someone has, you know, something they would like to be brought up, like, you know, hey, uh, Jonathan, you know, uh, left his smelly socks in the dryer bin. Or, you know, or, or, you know uh, Jeff forgot to do the dishes. Or, you know, let, let's bring up important family topics. Um, but over time... Uh, the joke in our family, we stopped call calling it family council and called it family cancel, right? <laughs> because uh, you kind of ended up, us siblings, you know, uh, focusing the time on, you know, uh, uh, berating each other. And we don't want family worship to be that. We want to focus the family time on how good God is, how amazing he is, what he's doing in our family. And finally, number three, make the time interactive, uh, not just uh, reading or lecturing. It's important, to, especially with little kids, to not just read every time, to, but to make it interactive. And, and I want to just share a few things. I know this is very small. Um, you know, I can uh, send this out if that would be helpful at all to any of the families that are here. Uh, but there, uh, a few years ago, my wife and I, we were having worship with the kids, but as, as we had all three kids, we realized we've got to make this a lot more interesting. You know, our kids are getting antsy, and they're wanting to get up. And so some of the things that we have done, just for example, uh, is doing a trust fall. You guys remember trust fall, right, where you stand on a ledge, and you say, one, two, three, fall back. And it is, a, it is incredible. You can, uh, I think we did it for uh, Ted and Nancy Jones at their house. Maybe we haven't yet, but, but uh, Ted and Nancy, if you remember that ledge that you have uh, just uh, above our basement there. And, you know, this is probably a wall. I would say the wall is like, you know, I don't know, above me. It's like seven, eight feet tall. And Levi, this little kid, has too much trust in his dad, right? He just stood there with his eyes closed and just fell off the thing. Like, oh, I'm catching him, right? But kids have trust, amen? And, and as we do these, did this activity, a trust fall, we open up the Bible together and say, hey, let's talk about how we can trust God. Just like we trust our lives with God, we need to trust him. You know, uh, 
Uh, one time we passed out Band-Aids. Kids love Band-Aids for some reason, right? Uh, they love putting Band-Aids on themselves. And we passed out Band-Aids and we looked up uh, Revelation 21 verse 4 and said, hey, do you know that there's going to be no Band-Aids in heaven? It's going to be awesome. There's going to be no crying. And, and the kids talked about what they're looking forward to. Uh, we, my, my little girl loves dolls and we took her dolls and the boys held the dolls too. And, you know, uh, they were kind of embarrassed uh, holding this doll. But, okay, everyone hold the doll. My wife and I had a doll. And we read Psalms 139, how we're created in the image of God. And, 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 and how, you know, God has created us. One of my favorite ones, number six, was I got out my leaf blower. All right, men, we like getting out our tools. And I got out my leaf blower, and we went outside, and we, we took a couple of objects, and we started blowing them around. And my kids took turns blowing them around. They had a, a whole lot of fun with that. And then we looked up Jeremiah 17. And Jeremiah 17 talks about that when we trust in people and not God, we're like a shrub that gets blown around in the wind. And we talked about the importance of, of, of putting our trust in God. And then we tried blowing a rock. You can't blow a rock, right? And we talked in Jeremiah 17. It says that, you know, uh, someone that trusts in Jesus and, and, and it talks about reading the Bible in Psalms 1 is someone that uh, uh, spends time with him. So you get the idea. I think as we make these family worships interactive and fun uh, on a daily basis that God, uh, God will be honored. And, and I understand. Friends, it is hard. We, we struggle with keeping this up on a daily basis. You know, there's times where we're having worship in the car. You know, we're, get in the car, let's go. And we're driving along and, you know, we have a, a song and a family prayer. Um, but I believe, friends, that as we bring Jesus into our conversation as parents, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles, as neighbors, uh, that young people will get excited when we talk about Jesus. Amen? So I want us to, to go ahead and turn now to 1 Kings chapter 18, our scripture reading. <clears throat> And we're just going to spend a couple minutes in closing. This is our last passage. 1 Kings chapter 18. Because I recognize, friends, that with these type of statistics that we've looked at, inevitably, there are many here uh, that need to revisit their time with God. It's easy to get busy. It's easy to, you know, uh, uh, get into a rut of not doing it. As a family, it's, it's so easy to not spend that regular time with God and seeking Him in prayer. Uh, and, and, and what do we do? What do we do as God's people when we have neglected the altar? When we've neglected the altar, what can we do and what should we do? And I believe that God's Word here in 1 Kings 18 answers that question. And so let's go ahead and start in 1 Kings 18, and we'll just go ahead and start in verse 30. We're gonna, I'm just going to read the first part of it. It says, Then Elijah said to all the people, what? Come near to me, and all the people came near to him. We know this story. Elijah is on top of Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel used to be a lush, fertile, beautiful place. In fact, the word Carmel means garden. It used to be a gorgeous place. It's not just one tall mountain, but a beautiful mountain ridge in Israel. And at one point in time, Carmel was a beautiful place, but now it was barren and dry and dusty, and there was no food in the land for those three and a half years. And here is Elijah, the rugged prophet Elijah. He has a belt around his waist, a mantle around his shoulders, clothed in camel skin, and he's standing with courage on Mount Carmel, calling the Israelites back to worship of God, back to the altar, back to systematic daily time with God, because the Israelites had neglected the altar. In fact, standing there in front of Elijah was the altar of God. 
but it was broken down. The altar of God on Mount Carmel was broken down. It was there. It used to be a place where families and children and moms and dads would come on Mount Carmel and worship God together. It used to be a place where people would daily bow their heads and hearts before God. But now, but now the altar of God had been neglected and we could say that the drought that the Israelites experienced was indicative of the drought in their hearts. The drought without was really because of the drought within. Because they neglected the altar of God, their lives became dry. Ellen White talks about it this way. She says, neglect the exercise of prayer or engage in in prayer here and then. Now and then it seems convenient. When you're having a family meal or maybe when you're driving the car, now and then. But when you do that and you lose your hold on God, she says the spiritual faculties lose their vitality, the religious experience lacks health and vigor. And the dryness of Israel's physical land, I believe, was the same condition of Israelites' hearts. They were dry and and, and barren and dusty. And I know, friends, from experience, That many of us, including myself, have been in a condition where our hearts are dry and dusty. Where we feel like there's no hope. Where we feel like, God, can I even go on? I'm trying to do this God thing. I'm trying to raise my parents to love God. Or my kids to love God. I'm trying to have family worship. I'm trying to point them to Jesus, but it's hard. Lord, I've lost all hope. I'm I'm by myself now. I've I've lost my spouse. and, And we used to have worship together, but now it's so lonely. God, are you really there? We know what Israel had experienced. We understand what they're they're going through. We can't point fingers and say, come on, Israel. You shouldn't have neglected the altar because we know that we've neglected the altar before. And when we neglect the altar, when we're feeling dry inside, how can we receive growth and and beauty? How can our hearts become uh, luscious again? And I believe the answer Elijah gives us is very simple. In 1 Kings chapter 18, 1 Kings 18, 30, Elijah said to all the people, come near to me, and the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of God that was broken down. And Elijah, verse 31, took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with those stones, he built an altar in the name of God. And he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two uh, seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bowl in pieces, and, and laid burnt sacrifice on the wood. He filled the water parts and, and soaked the entire altar. Do it a second time and a third time. And, and water, verse 35, ran around the altar. Friends, the simple key of what do we do when our altars are broken? What do we do when we feel dry inside? The simple key is to rebuild your altar. Literally, that's it. Just rebuild your altar. Come with your family. Come by yourself and get on your knees and say, God, we've neglected you. We're feeling dry in our family. And today, Lord, we want to rebuild our altar. Father, our hearts are scattered just like the scattered stones of the Israelites' altar. Father, our our hearts are with work and with school and with even the busyness of church. And Father, there's so much going on. And and Lord, we want to come and, and gather those scattered stones. Will you do it for us, Lord? 
And we want to build this altar, and as we kneel at this altar, I believe, friends, that the same thing that happened with Elijah's altar will, will happen with us. We know the story. That fire came down from God as Elijah knelt at that simple altar. Fire came down from God and burnt up and consumed the entire sacrifice, and we are praying for the same thing, that the Holy Spirit of God would come down and burn us up, would ignite us in love for him and for each other, because the Holy Spirit can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. God can do for you what you can't do for yourself. You can't reignite that flame, but he can. And what he is asking you to do, as we talked about in Sabbath school, there is a choice that you need to make. And that is to make yourself available, morning and evening, to come before him and say, God, here's my altar. It's simple, Lord. It's broken. There's fragments, but here it is, God. And God will take it. He will take our hearts, for we cannot give them. Lord, keep them pure for I cannot keep them pure before they save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchrist-like self. Lord, mold me and fashion me and raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of your love can flow through my soul. As we pray that prayer, as we spend time with him as a family, by ourselves, with our neighbors, as a church, God will pour out his Holy Spirit and he will do great things and mighty things. Father in heaven, we desire as a church body to give you space to work in our lives. Forgive us, Lord, for rushing through the circle of your presence too soon. Forgive us, Lord, for not pausing and waiting for counsel from on high. Forgive us for thinking that we can do it on our own. And Father, today, this Sabbath, we want to recommit our times of worship to you. Father, I know that those that are already spending time with you on a daily basis can spend more time, can spend more time on their knees, more time praying for the church and praying for their loved ones. I know, Father, that there are families like our own that can strengthen their times of worship each day. Father, we desire as families, as couples, as, as young people, the entire church family, to strengthening, Lord, our walk with you. We can't do it on our own. We need you. We need you in our lives. We love you. We thank you for loving us first. And we pray all these things in the precious name and blood of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen, amen.